0: Welcome to, the Welcome to the 34 Circe, 34 Circe Salon. Salon. Welcome, Welcome to, to
1: Make Matriarchy Great make Again. Matriarchy matriarchy matriarchy. Matriarchy again. <laughs>
0: Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. Yes, everyone loves a Marlowe quote. Here we go, folks. <laughs> it's the 34th Circus song. So make matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I am with...
1: Don Sam Alden. Welcome, Hello. welcome. Thanks we for joining Ray. us again
0: wonderful guest with us, Max Dashu. Welcome back, Max. How are you?
2: Thank you. Uh, good to be here.
1: So great to have you back. We've been we've been looking forward to this moment for many months.
2: Well, the time has come. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Perfect. So the reason for the Marlowe Quote is a quote about Helen, and it's a famous quote, great for, from a wonderful play. And we're going to talk about Using Helen as a starting point, we're going to talk about women in the Trojan War era, particularly around the Trojan War, and start to expand and explore some themes. So um, we have a little tradition of uh, something called the big idea, which uh, (laughs) angels on high. So Matthew, what would be the big idea, just a general notion of what we're going to talk about today, what you'd like to convey to the listeners?
2: Helen, one writer talked about how Helen is what men want her to be. There are all these narratives about Helen, very contradictory ones. And so she's a symbol. This is a mythic narrative, but we can excavate that to look at various realities in the Mycenaean world, which is the time that the Trojan War, let's just throw out a raw date of 1250 BCE. And so we're going to, we want to look at this from different angles and, you know, see what, what they wanted her to symbolize, you know, all the different strands. There's so many strands.
0: Can we talk, let's first give the listener and say, what do we mean by the Mycenaean? Who were the Mycenaeans? You've given the timeframe. How would we be familiar with that time frame? Of course, Trojan War was the first thing that we started with. So that's right. we'll throw that out. But maybe a little bit, just a little background. for Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that's a good question because actually I'm struggling with this in my, my manuscript right now is the word Mycenaean is in such wide use, we probably can't really avoid it. But they didn't call themselves that. This is named after Mycenae, which is one of the great fortress cities of ancient Greece that somewhere in the time frame starting around 1600 BCE, you have this Achaean people, the Achaiyai is what they call themselves, right? The Achaeans. And so there, there are the Argives, the Achaeans, and the Donans in the Iliad. There are three different names for this group of people, which are hierarchical social systems in Greece. There's chieftaincies. They are raiders and traders and slavers. There's a lot of wealth. They're, they're a power. Around the eastern Mediterranean especially, so the coast of what is now Turkey, the Egyptians refer to them, the Hittites refer to them as a great power. Mm -hmm. And they are Greek-speaking. So our oldest written Greek records come from the Mycenaeans or the Achaeans. And they're writing in Linear B, which is a borrowing from ancient Crete. Linear A hasn't been deciphered. They're still arguing about what language family that might have been. You know, and the ancient Cretans are. It, this is complicated, okay? Right,
0: right. No, we we brought this up because this is a big thing that we keep talking about with the uh, ancient, yeah, the, the idea so, were they matriarchal and all that good stuff.
2: Well, not even, not even, yeah, that too. But like with the with the Cretans, the old narrative was that there were the matriarchal Cretans, and then there were the patriarchal Mycenaeans, and the Mycenaeans were conquerors that weren't related to the Cretans. All the genome studies are coming through now, and they're seeing that the Mycenaeans are basically what Gimbutas calls a hybrid culture. Because genetically, they have elements of the ancient Aegean peoples related to the Cycladic Islands, the Cretans included, and Western Asia, you know. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, what may be an Etruscan substrate, there's a whole argument about what language did these people speak. right? And then there's another element in the Mycenaean lineage, which is from the steppe. Okay, so what happens, As the best picture now, is that somewhere in the neighborhood of 2300 BCE, the ancestors of the Greeks, the Helladic invaders, come into the peninsula. And there may have been earlier Indo-European invasions. This is something that's emerging in the linguistic scholarship. But anyhow, uh, there's this Greek invasions because there's a language displacement that happens. And then you have emerging some centuries after that kind of a hybrid culture because it bears a lot of signatures of the old Aegean culture. The Mycenaeans are a blend. So when you look at their art, you will see the women dressed like Cretan women with the bared breasts and the flounced robes, and they're doing ceremony. There's a lot of female ceremonial leadership attested in the archaeological record for the Mycenaeans and not only the Cretans. The genome studies show that there is a relationship between these two groups. They're not entirely alien to each other.
0: It, it, and so, yeah, we just just uh, sorry, just to interject because Donna and I had been talking about an article uh, that Vicki Noble had sent us about the DNA of both the Cretan and the Mycenaean people. And just to give a, like a real quick recap for the listener. This is related to what we've talked about with the Indo-European invaders and the Anatolian farmers that were there first. And and so so for what uh, you're saying, Max, is that the Mycenaeans are a blend of those two groups, the Anatolian farmers with the Indo-European invaders.
2: Right. And so like the Cretans had their own language. There is a distinction. So the way I'm viewing this is that the Bronze Age was a time of increased violence, war, raiding, and social hierarchy. Right. And not just in Greece, but around the Mediterranean, especially the eastern Mediterranean, you see this this development happening. So Crete was somewhat protected from this by being a sea power. Mm. It wasn't so easy to invade it. And they had a very powerful navy so they could keep the invaders out at least until about 1450 BCE. And then the Achaeans or the Mycenaeans invade Crete. And there's this huge crash that happens for like a century or more. In Crete, where you're not seeing the brilliant culture anymore, and then it kind of comes back around 1300, 1200. That that time frame, but it's it's both a continuity with the priestesses and the goddesses, the women holding snakes in their arms, some of the symbolism, but at the same time artistically, it's not at the level it was before. Ooh. You know, they definitely took a big hit, and they are now starting the the rulers are Greek speaking, and so Crete has a shift that happens where eventually they too become Greek speakers. There's this intermediate period, and, and Homer refers to the Etio-Cretans, the true Cretans, because there are these different ethnicities. You have these Hellatic invaders over the original people in, in Crete. And so this Etio-Cretan is attested quite late, maybe like, I, I forget the figure, it might be 6th century BCE or something like that. There are still people speaking that old language. So this is a long process. If we go back, though, to the Mycenaeans, the old idea was they borrowed their culture from the Cretans because there was no concept of any ethnic ties, right? Because they're on the mainland, the Mycenaeans or the Achaeans are much more subject to this warfare pattern. Mm -hmm. And they become this, this raiding and trading society. They have kings, which are more like war chieftains. It's kind of difficult to call it an empire, I suppose you could, but it's really based on raiding and trading. They're not necessarily, they are physically conquering some places like Miletus on the coast of Anatolia becomes an early Mycenaean settlement. And you're going to have these waves of Greek colonizations happening along that western coast of Asia Minor over a period of Shoo, thousand years, right? Uh, even after the Mycenaeans fall, these continue to be these waves. So there's the Ionian colonizations, and before that, even there was the Aeolian colonization. So the area of Troy, the island of Lesbos, is colonized by the Aeolians, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand BCE. And it's interesting because the Aeolian language is the closest one that we know of to the Mycenaean language. Mm. Ionian is different. So Homer's writing an Ionian. The Iliad is is an Ionian, mm-hmm. and there are discrepancies there in in those languages. The the Iliad we have to think about this as dating sometime after seven fifty BCE. Some people would even put it into the six hundreds, and there's a whole argument about the dates of that. Yeah, yeah.
0: There's been uh, right. We've been covering that on a different channel, and and some of the thoughts are around that era seems to be. What you just said, that people are... Yeah,
2: that's the consensus. You know, we we could just roughly say 700 BCE. Because part of the thing is, how could there even be a written document? Because the Greeks really aren't adopting the Asiatic alphabets, the Phoenicians alphabet, before that. You know, I mean, it's just like there's not a very long time lag before we start getting things written down. Because there's no written tradition among the Greeks before 800. Mm -hmm. Right? So... When we look at this, this is important because there's two strands we have to see when we're talking about the Mycenaeans. One, well, actually several. We have the archaeological, we have now the genome, we have the linguistic, so a language closely related to Aeolian, and then we have the Iliadic testimony, which is not recorded until sometime around 700 BCE, so that's a big time lag. That's half a millennium from the fall of the Mycenaean states, Yeah. right? So part of what we have to parse when we're talking about Helen or any of this this depiction of Mycenaean society is that it was recorded at a time distance that's as great as ours to Chaucer right all right so there's a linguistic difference there number one number two there's a lot of mythologization that there's like a historic drift because what Homer is saying is not exactly what the Mycenaeans were. There's a lot of there's a lot of authentic cultural testimony. So there's this guy, this German historian Latus, Joachim Latus, who does like a lot of analysis of the ways that um, the the Iliadic testimony actually reflects historical reality. So one of his main cases is the assemblage of the ships. That uh, head out of Boeotia, in to go out and fight the Trojan War. This is like the whole Iphigenia at Aulis story, right? Right. right yeah. Before the opera, there was the play. So mm-hmm. you have Mycenaean lords and their armies, <laughs> their navies actually assembling there between Euboea and and the Boeotian uh, mainland, and it names. Not only the cities, but like the, the, the lords who hold lands in all these different places. And the names are of Mycenaean vintage. Mm. They're not the names that were known to the Ionians. So this is an authentication because how would these names have been known had they not been somehow preserved through the oral tradition of the epic bards? Right. 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 So that, that's a kind of a proof in a way that there is a lot of authentic Uh, historical information embedded in the iliad however what these bards are is there's a continuity because the mycenaeans did not have a literature strictly speaking they had writing they had linear b but it is accounting books for the recording of property yes right who are the landholders who are the great lords who are the subtenants what are their possessions you know the trade they're doing so there's a lot of records about Women cloth workers, many of them enslaved, who are captives out of Asia. And at that time, Asia referred to Ionia and perhaps to Lydia. This is where our word for Asian continent comes from, is a, a name that the Greeks gave. The Asiwia, I think is the the, uh, the Hittite word. All right, So it was much more originally a very specific regional, the Asua might be another form of it, uh, for that part of central western Turkey. So
0: so that term for Asia is often confusing for modern readers because it's not referring to what people think it refers to. It's referring to, like you say, that specific area rather than that this giant continent that we think of now.
2: And it's a Hittite word for that region. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and for just that
0: specific region, right? Just that particular yeah, just that
2: specific region. It's like you know the the western part of the central, you know, central western part of. what we now call turkey Mm. so anyway the the linear b tablets and especially those from Pylos, which is in southwestern greece refer a lot to female captives who are skilled in woolworking. so and, and in linen i think also they're they're fabric workers so they're weavers spinners and they are enslaved captives they were dragged all the way to the other side of greece and so this fabric trade is part of the mycenaean wealth Um, but we're talking about linear B descriptions, you know, basically they're cataloging this wealth, the slaves, there's other information that comes through in the linear B text, including, you know, this will be relevant in some ways to our discussion of Helen, that, um, there are, there's definitely a war footing. There are leaders, the Wanox is thought of, you know, the word king is used, but this is the old Indo-European sense of king as the war leader. Just like Agamemnon is is the ultimate general of the whole Achaean army in the Trojan War mm-hmm. on the female side though, and you know we're going to come back to this, there are no recorded names for queens in linear B and I'm still trying to find out at least at Pillos, Chadwick says there are not any recorded names for kings either but we do see a presence of women as priestesses, and this is very much correlating with the archaeological record, which is we see a female dominance in the f- sphere of religion. Its mm. priestesses, its goddesses, the, the frescoes at the citadel of Mycenae itself, inside of the shrine and also other places, other Thebes, Tyrants, the uh, you know, all of the remainder of Mycenaean art, the seals certainly, are just loaded with ceremonial scenes, women in shamanic ecstasies dancing with animals, gazelles and goats, or turning themselves into winged beings through the means of trance dance. Mm-hmm. So there's this female leadership in religion, but in the in the Pillos Linear B tablets, we are seeing those women sometimes as reigning over temples. Which have extensive land holdings, and so they—the women are a power. It's there's a division which persists in classical Greece between, you know, a male-dominated society with which has a military footing, but yet the sphere of the of temples and especially around goddesses, this is where you see the female power. Mm. Okay, so there's some continuities there. Right. So anyway, that, those are the Mycenaeans. Mm-hmm. And, and so the Trojan War is an invasion of the northwest corner, of what we now call Turkey. And Taruisa or Tuya, there's different names. And again, Hittite recording. These are the older forms of what becomes on Greek tongues, Troy. And so there's this invasion. And that's what the, the, the Iliad doesn't, it doesn't talk about the whole process. It Telescopes it down to like the last nine days. Is it the last nine days? I forget. But nine years. It's the, the end. Yeah, of the the nine ten,
0: Well, the ten. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the ten year cycle. But yeah. Yeah.
2: It, it's it's <laughs> the end of this this long this long invasion. So they've been besieging Troy, and the document itself is it the backstory, the reason for the war, which it refers to, but it's not really described in the Iliad, is that Helen leaves her husband, Menelaus, and treks off with Paris to Troy. And so there's a lot of backstory that's not told in the Iliad. And we can fill this in for your listeners if you want to do that.
0: Uh, you yeah, know, the, why, the, because there was the epics. just for the listener, there was a, something called the epic cycle. There uh, were all these different stories, these different works about the Iliad. Many of which we don't have or we only have fragments of, right. some of which are important for us on this channel because they talk about the Amazons, which are often overlooked and they get more detailed on the celia, et cetera, etc., etc. But anyway, so that's where a lot of the backstory that, that Max is talking about comes from some of these other stories.
2: And and this is relevant too to this whole idea of the epic cycle is an oral tradition. Homer's writing this stuff down, or or maybe a series of people. There's a, even the a dispute of whether this is one guy,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah.
2: But there's mm-hmm. this huge orature that is of Mycenaean vintage, which also gets edited over time. There's a drift, that historic drift I referred to, by the bards themselves, who start to interject um, anachronistic elements into the, into the narrative, right? Mm-hmm. But they are assuming that the audience that they're pandering to is a lordly class right it's it's the later landholders in the so-called dark ages you know there's a continuity there's not a complete break because these stories would not have survived but there's some kind of lordly audience that is avid for these stories of these great warriors and all this stuff and so they they preserve this but they assumed that their hearers knew all these backstories. So the, the Trojan horse story is not in the Iliad either. And there's, there's a lot. Right. We, could, we could look at a whole line. I'm going to just summarize this very briefly. The whole story begins with the rape of the goddess Thetis, which is occasioned by Zeus having, hearing a prophecy that a son by her would overthrow his rule. And we know this theme already because that's what Zeus did to Saturn and that's what Saturn did to his father, Uranus. Okay. So Zeus wants to, um, neutralize the power of Thetis and of her, particularly of her offspring. She is a Titan. She can't be killed. Right. So he forces her abduction by a mortal named Peleus and he has the aid of various gods. And he grabs Thetis and he he seizes her and she changes into all these forms. And it's just basically a mythic conquest of a goddess by a mortal. And so the marriage, the forced marriage, which we'll really say the rape of Thetis, is the occasion on which Eris, the goddess of discord, is not invited. So it's all blamed on Eris. She throws the apple of discord into the gathering and then... The fight over who gets the apple, and then which which lady will where be chosen have we heard by that Caris.
0: this sounds familiar for some reason. Hmm. I wonder. The whole <laughs> yeah. Thing. So, anyway. and, and,
2: and the irony of this story is that as if there had to be a discord created by Eris, because the very occasion of the wedding is a rape, right? Of a goddess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like it's already problematic. But anyway, this is where the story of the the vying of the three goddesses, Hera. Athena and Aphrodite to be the fairest of them all very patriarchal story and Paris is chosen he's the one who becomes the the judge of which of these goddesses uh will will get this apple and is the most beautiful and then he chooses Aphrodite who promises him the love of the most beautiful woman in the world and this would be Helen and because she had he has the backing of Aphrodite Paris is able to uh, take to seduce Helen and take her off, you know, she she comes willingly. She falls in love with Paris right. through the, the machinations of Aphrodite. And so she leaves her husband, Menelaus, and treks off to Troy.
0: Uh, just, just to jump in, because I think that's important, one of the things that often comes up is the idea of this abduction uh, and the Greeks, the, the you know, this sort of honor, but there are, there's a lot of different strands in terms of these stories, these different narratives, where it really is just the as simplest as she prefers Paris. And often that Menelaus isn't really the nicest guy. So. And,
1: and also, if we go with, um, you know, the, the, the history of Troy as a sort of bastion of uh, mother rule. Then she is going from Sparta, which although, you know, women had some power, it was very limited and very um, regionalized. She is going from a place where she has less power to a place where she has more power, where she's more honored. So it, there's also well, that It's interesting
2: because, you know, Helen is vied for by a whole multitude of suitors. This is before she marries Menelaus. Right. Her father, Tyndareus, chooses Menelaus as the the successor menelaus is not the son of the king of troy right his access to the throne of troy is through helen and we'll come right. back to this when we talk about the kingmaker story but i'm, I'm just going to allude to this there so this is one reason why getting helen back can become important because right. you know, whereas where the kingship of menelaus without helen but there's another part of it which is that all of these suitors Odysseus has his hand in this. The suitors have to swear that whoever is chosen, they will, they will support right. in anything. And so this is how they are all called together to help Menelaus go get Helen back. Right? That's, that's the backstory for mm-hmm. why this invasion even happens. Right. Okay? Of course, of we have another backstory, which is the Mycenaeans themselves are already invading and raiding Asia. Right. this is this is part of a larger pattern. It's not just Troy,
1: <laughs> right, right.
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, and Helen follows her heart and there are all these variations from later classical authors, but outside of the epic cycle. Over whether Helen went willingly, whether she mm-hmm. was abducted, there are mm-hmm. stories. Even Herodotus actually is one of several who say she never went to Troy. She was actually hiding in Egypt with Paris. Right. And there was some, <laughs> you know, exactly. and so exactly. it, the variations are are massive in all of this, of, of all the ways it's told. And, and this is that part of that drift of the stories, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because it it, it be, they're mythic in many ways. Mm-hmm. There's a there's one narrative, and this is in the iliad itself even though it doesn't actually talk about how helen originally left with paris and came to troy it blames her and it has her blame herself right for right. everything that's happened you know it's not her fault that menelaus invades troy to come get her back she was just you know following her own sovereignty but she's made into this you know there's this word canopus this dog-eyed term that is a term of terrible shame that Repeatedly is used about her and by her about herself. So there's this. This is a very degraded Helen that we see depicted. So let me let me see if
0: I get this right. In the ancient Greek world, they sexually shamed a powerful woman. How unusual!
1: (laughs) That never happened. The the
0: Greeks would never do something like this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, it's not surprising that you get that strand. But it is also for me surprising when you know we've been going through the Iliad, as I said on another podcast called the Parallax that we do book by book, it is interesting to see more sympathetic depictions of her, which we receive in this era, uh, in our time, Helen as sort of this woman, you know, this wanton woman who caused destruction, yet there is this long history, this long strand of Helen in the much more positive, much more empowered uh, image that we don't always hear about today, at least.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and even in the Iliad, there are like these undertoes because there are themes that survive and one of them is the attachment of Helen to this great wealth. She takes her dowry with her Mm. right and so when paris is fighting against menelaus well actually paris you know there's a whole thing that happens the battle doesn't even completely take place but the idea is they're going to duel and the winner will get helen and her wealth right you know so there are little pieces like that you know the wealth is still hers and she brought it with her out of out of sparta Uh, you know that's just something and and okay so that's there's there's all the sexual politics of the trojan war but i want to back up a little bit too because there's another side to helen which is that originally helen is a goddess she is by one narrative the daughter of nemesis this goddess who was raped by zeus interesting
0: okay Mm -hmm. right
2: and then by the other story which is better known and really more more commonly circulated especially in modern times she she results from the story of Leda and the swan so the way that we tend to get all of these stories is very disembodied you know there's all these ancient and modern sculptures and paintings of Leda and the swan you know all these male artists are like oh yes you know here's zeus as a swan um having sexual congress with Leda, and this is from this comes an egg which contains Helen and the Dioscura, her brothers, which are the uh, scions of the um I mean, it's kind of weird, because if Zeus has offspring by Leta, they are not the offspring of Tyndareus at all, the king right. of Sparta. right. So where's the lineage to Sparta, right? You know yeah. it's kind of like but and and we'll come back to this when we talk about the 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 queenship narrative. But that's just an interesting point in mind. Anyway, yeah, there, there was Either a festival,
0: way, they worshipped her too. There was a festival to Helen too in the ancient world. There's a web. A festival to Helen,
2: right? And there are hero worshipped. shrines yeah. to Helen, which were very, very important in Sparta. They were the ma- one of the major sanctuaries in Sparta, and there's there's a whole there's a whole lot of ceremonial practice that continued around Helen in Sparta itself. This is aside from the whole Iliadic narrative. Right.
0: Well, and she also, I mean, I know you'll, you'll get to this. She also, there is that, that tradition of, of the Spartan women, of their health, of their beauty, of their strength. So she's part of that, you know, the earliest part of that, too.
2: Right. Okay. So either Helen is the daughter of Nemesis and Zeus, which means she is entirely a goddess, or she is a demigoddess who is descended from Zeus and Leda, the mm-hmm. Aetolian princess who marries Tyndareus. Okay. Helen has brothers well I, I'm not going to go into that right now because that's that's when we get to the queenship narrative but anyway the goddess side of her and there are various linguistic derivations that show her name having to do with light you know so oh. there's this whole side of her and, and this this goddess veneration of Hena, Helen persists inside the herion sometimes she's ver- revered on her own and sometimes she's revered side by side by menelaus the end story of the Trojan War is that they, the invaders defeat the Trojans, they sack Troy, they take the women captive, including the royal women. So that's, you know, the, the Trojan women plays, uh, talking about how a woman could fall from the very top of society to the most degraded, you know, becoming concubines of the invaders that have killed their kin. And this is mm-hmm. a very much a theme, not just for yes. them, but also for, the lesbian uh, woman, you know, from Lesbos, uh, mm-hmm. Briseis, who was another pivotal figure, a female captive. And in some ways you could even argue that more pivotal in the Iliad, right? It's, but- it, it's,
0: she, I think I mentioned to you in the movie, one of the fascinating things about how Hollywood reimagines all this stuff is you have this Briseis who is this sex slave, this captive. And in the movie, her relationship is made into a love story. And so does the Iliad. yeah. Well, they, although interesting though, with the Iliad, I think the movie goes much further. Yes, right. the Iliad. No, no much doubt more. about that. Yeah, yeah. The Iliad is just you know Achilles is not Achilles is a bit of a jerk. Everybody he's a total that. asshole. He's a, he is <laughs> yeah, absolutely he, is. he absolutely he's a
1: narcissist and yeah
0: yeah he's he's I, I was in, on the other podcast I call him he's like the the diva quarterback he's the guy yes. the best player yeah. on the team and he's just going to make sure everybody knows it and gets paid. But they turned it into the movie as if there's this great romance. He, she's a sex slave. She's a war captive. And I think that's something that that gets lost in Hollywood fantasy. Sorry, but yeah, go well, ahead. I mean,
2: the seed of that is in the Iliad, but you know, it's uh, it's not as developed. And certainly, not only Hollywood, but even like the uh, European painters, you mm-hmm. know, constantly they love to do the rape of the Sabines or the rape, you know, Mm -hmm. these, these are stories they love to recount. They're kind of performatively reiterating male domination over women, sexual domination over women, you know, and it's all okay because it's classical. Right. These Christian artists can paint all this stuff because it's all, it's just the Greeks, you know,
0: we have a running joke here about the, when we talk about the ancient world and archaeogenetics and how the explanations people find for that, you know, sex ratio imbalances when it's pretty clear. And many times the, you know, invading tribe has killed the men and raped the women. But you will often hear articles where someone says, well, maybe it's just the guys were really good looking and they decided to go with them instead. Oh. <laughs> so.
1: Right. Yeah. When they're when they were put side by side, the entire female population of the civilization decided these invaders were much better and just packed up and left with them of their own free will. Yeah, that happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In the guy's dream. But anyway. But,
2: you know, with Achilles, it's it's really jive because the whole battle between Achilles and Agamemnon over the body of Briseis, you know, goes on. And Achilles is pretending what a terrible offense it is to his honor that, you know, this captive was taken away from him. And he pretends early on, you know, that he loves Perseus. But at the end, he makes it very clear, oh, you can have her. Go ahead, take her. Do whatever you want to her. It's, it's mm-hmm. completely ego-based on his part. You know, you yes. took my thing and you can't right. take my thing. Nobody can take my thing. Right? Right. right. And he's petulant. You know, I'm going to take all my marbles and go home. And ultimately, Agamemnon has to give in and return Berseus, and not only that, but a lot of other wealth besides, to get Achilles to go back out on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Long story short, Troy is taken, and Menelaus seizes Helen back and drags her back home to Sparta, where she becomes a good Spartan wife, according to the way this is told. Right. So it's a big success from the patriarchal Greek standpoint. You know, you have to wonder how Helen felt about it. You know, that's not, uh, you know...
1: Well, she didn't have any more children after that point, so I question whether or not yes. <laughs> Helen and Menelaus's <laughs> marriage was actually restored, or perhaps they lived separate
2: lives from that
1: point on.
2: Well, I don't know if she would have had that option. But yeah. but see here, this is where it gets us back to this idea of, of the, the uh, queen as kingmaker. It's, it's apparent that Menelaus has no claim on the throne of Sparta other okay. than the dual throne right but one of the kings of sparta his marriage to helen that's right that's the link even though as I, we just mentioned there's a little bit of in inauthenticity to that as well because uh the mother of helen is an atolian and Tyndareus is not supposed to really be the father of helen either <laughs> but it's not uncommon in greek stories you have all these rapes by gods of women that you know they they father heroes they father dynasties, and so the the mortal man will kind of stand aside as Aegeus did, the guy that the Aegean Sea was named after, mm-hmm. stand aside and say, well you know I'm going to accept this as my son, right? And so that's the father of Theseus, who is the uh, Theseus, who is the the great hero of Athens. Mm-hmm. So right. this is a the theme that's around. They're very, very set on the idea of their heroes and their kings and their founders being sons of God. And we, we see echoes of that, of course, in Christianity, although in a very different way. Mm-hmm. You know? Right, right.
0: Yeah. We, yeah. we see it in Rome, too. I mean, the whole thing was the Julio-Claudian dynasty, the dynasty that Julius Caesar is part of. They're descended from Venus, Aphrodite. That mm. was their whole thing. We're We're descended directly from Venus, which I'm sure in the case of the Romans, they really were. But anyway
2: right so so anyway um let's go to the let's go to this thing about the uh the kingmaker theme so this is not something bethany hughes talks about this in her book and it's interesting because she begins well i don't know what begins but she does have this line where she's citing linear b tablets as showing quote that female aristocrats were used as diplomatic trading chips Mm. and i i have to agree with that we have evidence Mm -hmm. for that happening and in the mythic record as well as more historic uh references right sure. but hughes also points to evidence from the epic cycle that there's this very prominent theme of queenship and a female heir in a sense you know in the absence sometimes of brothers but in the case of helen not in the absence of brothers, she has two brothers right so how how does the line how's the line attached to her and so Hughes was not the pers- first person to point to this pattern. So Robert Brifall, in his old classic, The Mothers, which is about a century old now, also raises this. And he adduces a whole variety of different instances where you have the line going through a female heir. So one of the examples would be Hippodamea. And this is very early in the Greek mythological cycle. So Pelops, who is the ancestor after whom the Peloponnesian Peninsula is named, right. you know, is, is one of these figures. And he actually wins Hippodamea in a uh, competition. So it's almost like the male is being uh, selected through these athletic competitions. And there's various instances of this in, in Greek mythology. Anyway, he becomes king of Elus because he marries Hippodamea right it's not a son who is chosen and so right. this is very counter to the idea of patrilineage and and there's a lot of contradiction in in the way that this all if we try to look at all of greek mythology it's just a mess that way because we do see other stories where there are competitions between two sons of a line who of them whose sons are going to be the next inheritors so you have uh, atreus versus pallas in the early history of Athens, mm-hmm. and uh, you know whose sons are going to be the ones, you know. So there is there are intimations of patrilineage, and we know historically that that patrilineage was an Indo-European pattern, including the Greeks. But there's this stubborn matrilineal substratum that the Mycenaeans are also heir to. That uh, there's this theme, and it comes out through the mythic record. And so that's the interesting thing. So Burfall has a whole section and he in turn is drawing on James Fraser, And both of these scholars are really treated with 10 foot poles by a lot of academia because, you know, they are looking at the mythic record. But there's this little piece where Burfall talks in, in, in volume one. He says that Telamon goes to Salamis to marry a princess. His son Tenar goes to Cyprus and marries a princess. His son, Her son, Peleus, goes to Thea and marries a princess. His son, Achilles, goes to Scyros and marries a princess. His son, Neptolinos goes to Epirus and marries a princess. And he names other houses where this is the pattern. He says, on the other hand, the princesses remain at home. Hmm. And so he gives a couple instances. But I think Breffold does exaggerate this because I would need to go back and look up, and I haven't done this yet all those stories and find out did in fact that that male remain as king at the will of the princess or does he go off again because Achilles certainly does he doesn't go back to Skiros right? right right you know he he's he's there and gone and you know then there's a line maybe that that claims it's descent from him but he's not present as a king so you know there are holes in this story but yeah. is
0: it is it possible that we're talking about? I mean, I'm sure this is the, the line you're drawing on the idea that you've got this patrilineal Indo-European tradition that comes in and ruptures a very of what we think is a matrilineal tradition for the Anatolian farmer. That 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 mixture. That's what I'm get, saying. Yeah, this exactly, is what I'm calling exactly. the okay, matricultural
2: right. substrate.
0: Sure. Okay. And that's just uh-huh. so that idea is that that's where we're getting this. And and we've talked about, again, this is another thing we've talked about in the podcast before, what uh, I have felt is clear in the Western tradition all the way till today, which is this constant tension between a matrilineal pass, a perhaps matriarchal pass, and a clearly patriarchal rupture that we've had yes. yes. for so long. So,
2: That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so it's like there's a deep matricultural memory that somehow it's persistent, in, in people's minds it's persistent in the culture even though you have this top down hierarchical patriarchal system yeah. laid up over it
0: i, I really and, and that that older
2: me- memory penetrates through the patriarchal narrative in various places
0: yeah yeah that is that is just a <laughs> because it drives me crazy. It's so, to me, it's so obviously there. It's, you can see it, you can sense it. I'm talking about even till today and what we're looking at, and also what we're looking at now. We're looking at the past, looking at Helen Zero. But it's something that so much of that tension, that the sexual power dynamic that goes on in our culture, it's there. And until we, and because we don't acknowledge that matriarchal memory that's there, I think it just continues to perpetuate these cycles of just, problematic clashes, but
1: anyway. I also want to throw, just sort of throw in a random thought here, but, um, you know, this, remember the distance, right? Homer is, is, or whoever Homer was, is writing down things that happened many, many centuries ago. And, um, and he is writing it from a place that is much more advanced in terms of the patriarchal takeover of the culture, exactly and right. So yeah, and so as he writes about, you know, something that would be considered radical to him, you know, all these women running around being in charge, you know, it is entirely possible that he himself or whoever you know he is um, shaped those narratives as they were written down to to further obscure. Yes, Um, the actual power that women had. Yes,
2: I I think Mm -hmm. that's right. So I want to problematize those some of like what what Hughes argues is that in addition to the examples that that we've already talked about, uh, she also says, although here's one more, Oedipus comes to Thebes as a stranger and becomes king by marrying Jocasta. Okay, right. so there's another one where the, the throne is is tied to the woman, right. and you know that that kingmaker thing—the thing we have to understand about the way it's told to us—these queens are not shown as as regnant powers. The male accesses the kingship through the connection to the woman.
1: Right.
2: You see, so there's right. a little bit of an instrumental thing there. It's not it's not the matriarchal power of the queen
1: mm-hmm. in
2: mm-hmm. its full force. But anyway, Hughes argues that this also. Uh, she sees Clytemnestra, uh, who puts her lover on the throne in the absence of Agane- Ag- Agamemnon right. and Penelope as kingmakers. But this uh, there's a, a interesting blog I found by somebody named Laura Gill. And she counters in both these cases, it is the woman who marries in. She's not from that place. She's not attached to that kingship. So Agamemnon, you know, uh, was a son of the previous king and so was Odysseus. we will recall that penelope is spartan Mm -hmm. right she marries into ithaca she has no relationship to the kingship of ithaca whatever that may have been you know it's actually basileus is the word that's used which is you know there's been a lot of questioning about whether that actually meant king in the sense that we mean it it's certainly some kind of a chieftain right or even an official later on in um you know, classical times. So there, there are. It's kind of like there. There's no absolute statement you can make other than that there is this 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 substratum theme that comes through that gap of time that you were talking about, Dawn. Yeah.
1: You
2: know, yeah. between the Mycenaeans and the Homeric era and even later, that that allowed a way for these old mythic themes to p- repenetrate into the narrative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm because I, I don't think we're really dealing with a matriarchal society in um, in the Achaean world, right. although we do have that, that female sphere of power and religion, which is very strong. So in that sense, Mycenaean women, in some ways, had it better, certainly than classical Greek women did, even though they still had those priestesships, but they were much more hemmed in by a patriarchal society. Yeah.
1: I'm thinking now about the Oristia. Which, of course, talks about the story of Agamemnon when he comes back from Troy and finds mm-hmm. <clears throat> Clytemnestra with a different ruler on the throne, you know, her lover. Yeah, that's and, the story uh, that she's referring to. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And it becomes, you know, and of course, with uh, the conclusion of the entire trilogy is that. Um, is that Athena rules that you know the death of a, the the murder of a uh, a man is is more important than the murder of a woman essentially that uh, that Clytemnestra uh... killing <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah no, and specifically yeah. she's saying it's worse to kill your husband than it is to kill your to mother kill
1: your, to kill your mother yeah yeah and i oh. if you look at it in terms of the clash of cultures as well mm-hmm. if you know uh Clytemnestra had come from perhaps a matrilineal tradition into a household that had a patrilineal t- tradition and she was trying to reassert the matrilineal tradition by saying no no now that i'm queen i choose the king
2: well she does seem to have some of that valence you know she what what is interesting and i found this when i was re-reading the iliad is she, agamemnon actually captures her kills her husband maybe her children too i forget and takes her she herself mm. is a captive this is how she this is how she becomes queen of Mycenae. and so there's just this battlefield was strewn with female bodies you know yeah. of, of captivities that go on but you know clitibnestra in in that scene which is not in the iliad but the the whole the whole scene in aulus Agamem- agamemnon offends artemis and by killing uh, what does he do? He kills a stag, I think in the sacred forest. And so he, Artemis punishes. These armies cannot take off because the winds won't come up. Right. They're, they cannot sail out from all And so the troops are getting very restless and there might even be a revolt. And, and Agamemnon is desperate to placate Artemis and get this show on the road. Right. And so he, his priest tells him that he must sacrifice his daughter and Agamemnon knows Clytemnestra is not going along with this so he summons the two of them and says our daughter is going to marry Achilles the great prestigious warrior and so they come and Clytemnestra looks around and says we women where hold we we are a banquet she's looking for a wedding celebration and then right. she finds out no we're about to kill your daughter right. and her rage is there, you know, there's just definitely Clytemnestra is always the defiant woman who is fighting a severe patriarchy. Right. Right. And she's demonized for it. So it's a very right. bad thing when she kills Ag- Agamemnon, you know, and the way that this is all painted for us. She also, by the way, kills the captive. Right, so so here comes Cassandra, the right. the s- enslaved concubine now, who was once a pro- Trojan pr- princess and is now the the sex toy of Agamemnon, and she foresees all this happening. She's sitting outside in the wagon, and the, the the spirit comes upon her, and she begins wailing because she sees the disaster that is just about to unfold, which encompasses her own death. Right, and
0: yeah. isn't she? Isn't her story? Uh, I'll have to confirm this, but doesn't her story involve a rape as well, Cassandra?
2: Yeah, by yeah. Ajax, the lesser.
0: Yeah, and also her inability to be believed. There's another, right. like a strange, yeah, it's her gift of it's, prophecy. Which, there's oh, actually oh, two rapes. Right, two Apollo rapes, Apollo. Right, yeah, Apollo she rapes her. Apollo. And then he spits she spurns Apollo. She spurns Apollo's sexual yeah, advances
2: exactly. and he punishes her because she's already got the prophetic gift by, you know, you're not going to ever be believed. Your prophecies yeah. will be true, but too mm-hmm. bad you know and so she warns against paris you know this this child will be the the destruction of troy nobody believes her she warns in another story not the iliad about the trojan horse nobody believes her and so you know the the thwarted forced sex by apollo she actually manages to avoid but she is punished for it and then as troy is taken and the greek troops are swarming through the city burning raping and looting killing she takes refuge in the temple of athena and wraps herself around the palladion which is the effigy of athena and it is there that ajax comes in drags her off and rapes her and then later he has to give her up to the big man because she's an important figure so agamemnon takes her as his chattel but um There's an interesting story here that is not from the Iliadic period, but in Greek vase art, this is a favorite theme, the rape of Cassandra. Mm -hmm. And they never actually show the actual rape. They show it symbolically. So think about it. Here's a Trojan princess who would have been arrayed in robes, right? She's running into the temple and she's embracing the palladion. But in the Greek painter's eyes, this male gaze, she is naked with her legs spread sometimes right so they're 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 showing you they're telegraphing this is what's about to happen we're not going to show you the actual rape because that would make right. ajax look bad but you know the, we're all going to get off on this because a lot of right. these face paintings you know are bought by male customers and are being used in the symposia and everything they're all drinking and looking at these pictures on the, you know mm-hmm. and and so that that becomes like uh, erotic titillation the theme of her forcible subjugation Right. is something that is marketable.
0: Yeah, especially for classical Greece, our favorite era. Um, right. so I want to I want to okay. say something
2: else sure. about Sparta because I see we're running out of time. Uh it's true that Spartan women, you know, we have Xenophon and Aristotle and various other sources talking about how this the Spartan women are too powerful, you know, it's it's like a matriarchy they're compared to Crete so there's this idea of crete as the model of matriarchy and there is female inheritance but it is like at a much later it's like two to five or something two to you know the the male heirs take the bulk of it but the women do Mm -hmm. inherit property and the men are constantly dying so the women can end up with more property in their hands anyway Mm -hmm. but what we have to note and, and of course there is the education of the girls, the athletic competition of naked right. girls, which scandalized the Athenians, no end, mm-hmm. right? They're throwing discus, they're running races, they're, they're doing all of these sports. And they have a certain amount of liberty. They are not sexually patrolled in the same way as the Athenian women. But. Up until the point where their marriage is kind of like a a, a shady affair, it's all mm-hmm. kind of done sub rosa. You know, she she marries some guy and he doesn't. They don't move in together. He's off with the male warriors. They all lives off right. separately somewhere, but
0: and they, he comes have, under shade of
2: night. Too.
0: Yeah, hmm? yeah, exactly. You were about to say that. So they have a weird honeymoon, where very she... weird, and not only yeah. the
2: honeymoon but the whole marriage, right? Because he's until he's old, he's not going to be living there if he survives to be so you know but um her head is shaved right and she's she's you know waiting him in the dark it's this it's this surreptitious visit that's very shameful he comes there's sex and i can't imagine it would necessarily be very pleasurable sex for her right nice. you know it's, it's very much a patriarchal model of sex and then he goes back off to his his buds well yeah they sh- so, she
0: shaves her head they dress her like the boys in the academy though. right right he comes in and Has his way. I don't think he's giving her flowers and candy.
2: No, and and there's that whole homoerotic subtext Mm -hmm. of it, right? Now, that's all there. And, you know, we could talk at more length about the ambiguities of the the Spartan woman's position, except I want to problematize this concept of the Spartan woman. Mm -hmm. Because we're talking about the Spartiates, which are the ruling class. They are a distinct minority you know, maybe more than 10 to 1, ruling over the Helots, who are, in, they're serfs. They're a severely oppressed group of the majority who are, best I can, best I can parse this out, the, the Spartan ruling class are Dorians. They come from the wave of Dorian invaders, which by Greek accounts themselves, say come in around 1000 BCE and they conquer the Peloponnese. And so Laconia is sort of like the one of the core Spartan those uh, core uh, Dorian states. They become the ruling class over an Achaean substrate. Mm-hmm. So we have this stratification. We talked first about the archaic people who are non-Indo-European. Mm-hmm. And there were maybe several waves of these Indo-European invaders that come in one of whom are the Achaeans who as we've spoken about intermarry with eventually are culturally influenced by the old indigenous people Mm -hmm. all right so that's why the Mycenaeans are a hybrid culture that's the Achaeans Mm -hmm. then the Dorians come in and this is later right centuries and centuries later and they become the ruling class and so they subjugate the Achaeans and so the best guess is that the helots are descendants of these older achaean people Mm -hmm. right they may have also elements of the older indigenous indigenous layers the autochthonous people from an even earlier period Mm -hmm. but there is this forcing down into subjugation of of this older people and even though they are both speakers of greek languages they are ethnically and linguistically distinct Mm -hmm. so that um We don't have the same racialization necessarily as, as we know from modern times, but there's definitely this idea that the serfs are inferior. The Spartiates saw themselves as a better class of people and Mm -hmm. the Helots could, anything could be done to the Helots and they ceremonially actually had a periodic murderous culling Culling. of Helot men. Yeah. So that the Helot men who were perceived in any way to be the strongest, the most um, resistant the the whatever you know any kind of any kind of uh, back push against sparta spartiate rulership they would go out ceremonially the ephors would declare a, a ban i mean or, or a, a, a suspension of blood guilt for the young men to initiate themselves into the spartiate's class by going out in what they called the cryptea which means like the word crypt, that which is hidden. This is a secret thing they're doing. And they're going out on the countryside, and they are slaughtering Helot men. And although this is not spelled out, they are raping Helot women. Mm -hmm. So it's the same pattern of war as we've already observed. Kill the men, rape rape the women, right? Mm. So this reign of terror over the majority is basic to the whole Spartan state. So when we talk about Spartan women, the majority of Spartan women, they weren't Spartiates, but they were Helots. Okay. And these, they are this subjugated class of serfs. So that's really important because the the tendency in ancient Greek times, all the way up to modern times is to think of Spartans and not to look at the common people. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Right. And, and what the culture of those Helite people were, is something that's very, we don't have art from them, we don't have any cultural testimony from them. But uh, we, we have to keep that in mind. So then Sparta goes, and originally this this state of affairs prevailed in Laconia, classical Spartan area. In around 700, they begin invading, 700 BCE, they begin invading Messenia, which is the southwestern corner of Greece. This is at the region in which Pylos originally was located. And they subjugate them too. And this is a hard thing. They have to fight several wars. There's like a 20-year war that they fight to subjugate them. And then the the Mycenaeans aren't through yet. There's a passage of decades. And then there's another long, hard-fought uprising, which is also put down by the Spartiates. And so then the whole southwestern corner of Greece, including Laconia, is under the Spartan rule. Just Mm -hmm. thought I'd mention that part. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's it's it's
0: an incredible the pattern that we talked about at the beginning. This idea that you've got this wave, this warrior wave, this Indo-European wheel riding war wave coming through. It just repeats itself and repeats itself again. I think even to into the modern era, in many ways, we still have the echoes and behavior patterns. The calling of the the helots, I'd forgotten about, and that is, and the fact that the the most the strongest one are chosen. We do this in culture in different ways now by labor preventing people from work you can see it throughout american history and and taking well, lynchings you know, not to yes, mention you know, exactly lynchings. no i'm thinking yeah. of the south i'm thinking of the old yeah. south the idea of, exactly the you know, same you, thing you make it difficult for men to have jobs you lynch them you kill them, You do all this kind of stuff and then you go look they can't do anything it's like okay it's just the same pattern so well considering we have to wrap wrap it up at this point, what would you, how would you tie this sort of pattern and the story of Helen together? What would you want to sort of leave us with, our one more thing, so to speak? Um, What would you want to tell the listener about, and how do we, what would would you like them to take from this?
2: Well, it's a very complex interweave of stories, archaeology, the genome testimony that we're now getting, so that. You know, it's very difficult to summarize all of that in, in one way. Mm-hmm. But we can at least observe that so much is conditional on interpretation. Who are the storytellers? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, whether they're the court bards that re- retain these stories in the Iliad that glorify war. You know, and it, it, I just reread the Iliad last year. And it's like gory battle after gory battle mm-hmm. after gory battle interspersed with strangely the 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 warriors are standing up and giving long genealogies and stories you know it's like nobody's going to to sling a stone at them or throw a spear at them everybody (laughs) sort of stops and listens and then the other one answers back you know it's like it's it's very much a celebration of the glory of war and and that's the standpoint the standpoint also is in sympathy with the rapists Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, Achilles is the great hero, and he is a rapist, as is Agamemnon and all the rest of them. So it's it's definitely uh, very much of a male gaze. But for our purposes, we're looking at these other elements that peek through. And so one would be, you know, the the divine nature of Helen, the uh, matricultural elements that are present, even absorbed to some degree by the Mycenaeans. You know, from the older peoples, that that's that's something that's really important. And you know, there's there's I think that we just have to my retelling of this that's going to be in my book, uh, Pythias, Melissa, and Pharmakides. I'm going to be talking about this and retelling all of this from the standpoint of the women. Yes. You know, because most of what is happening, we're given by indirection. You know, you have to sort of fill in. All, all, of these stories about the captivities—they're, they're told. They're, they're in there, but you know, to, to see it in, through a lens that is not glorifying, but really deals with historical realities, and, and I would just also mention, Sean, that what you said I think is really important about the way these patterns continue. I laid hands. There's a graphic novel called Three that you might want to look up very well done about the helots they were doing this what i'm talking about from the standpoint of looking at how the cryptea looked from the standpoint of the helots and there's it's very well researched and there's a whole backstory there's like a discussion with with a sparta scholar in the back of the book and one of the things they mention in there is that the nazis used sparta as their prototype they Mm -hmm. were inculcating boys in schools about the spartan model and they this is this is the aryan model that they were all trying to you know they they recast it in their own terms and how uh there's there's a book that is mentioned there and i don't have this name memorized but a woman wrote a book about these schools in germany that she actually says the nazis had their plan the the plan for the east it was called was that they were going to subject, subjugate all of Russia and that the, quote-unquote, inferior Slavic people would become like Helots in the service of the German state. Yikes. So, you know, I mean, we, we have intimations of that, but it was just that, you know, she's really putting this in a framework that's very comparative to Sparta in its own right, but the fact that they themselves saw themselves according to this model. Yeah. It, it, there's something about the enduring nation, nature of these narratives mm-hmm. that gets carried on as poison, not only over generations, but centuries and millennia, Absolutely. you know, the glorification of the conquering rapist and murderer yeah. Yeah. that, you know, the rape of the Sabian women, there are all these ways that this became part of romantic and Baroque art countless paintings Mm -hmm. celebrating this and really just showing the women with their eyes rolled back and their arms thrown up to the heavens and their bodies splayed and their clothes falling off, Mm -hmm. you know, as if the women, you know, just kind of gave up, you know, there was just never any fight back. And this modeled female passivity and powerlessness to centuries of European women.
0: Yeah,
2: You know, this is the cultural narrative. It had the prestige as the Iliad, had the prestige carried over a thousand years of greek civilization and it models captivity rape and submission
1: and we still i mean we are still wrestling with with the with the realities of that in our so-called enlightened society i mean how many how many rapes actually get convicted it's yes still it, there is still this it's basically impunity yeah yeah there's still this 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 subconscious understanding in our culture that, that it is the prerogative of men to Mm -hmm. take a woman's body whenever they want to. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, And, and that's just, uh, you know, we have so much to overturn, but I think that it's really important because when we look at our society, so much of this is encoded in media. Yes, and not only in absolutely. the movies and the novels and, mm-hmm. but the advertising and video games
1: mm-hmm. and
2: all of these all of these expressions of media are constantly eroticizing horrible trauma yeah.
0: it's absolutely it's the thing i i, I note and i uh, talk about this with going all the time but and i saw it when we were watching troy when we talked about it again it just it's what struck me how they just made this into this glittering romantic fable of a captured sex slave and her capturer. It's like, you know what? Give me a
2: break. That and is Luke why is- I could not stand to watch that movie. I I I knew that it would just, it would be nothing but like, you know, a a big stomach ache, you yeah, know, to no, just it's, have it's, to yeah. sit through it. I wouldn't, what, I wouldn't do it. And, what, and, and probably it was, the same with the 300.
0: Yeah. Oh, the yes. 300 is a whole lot. There's a whole ethnic subtext with that movie which yeah. is just bizarre, actually. Um, they somehow cast the Persians in a way that is clearly supposed to reflect current American ethnic tensions. So it's a, just a bizarre movie. Yeah, I would way. say
1: I would say also LBGTQ issues because yeah. the Persians are also, you know, uh, effeminate are, and all this they stuff. They are yeah. effeminate, unmanly, and clearly, you know,
2: lesser for it. Well, Well, and that's really that. That's the. I mean, the Greeks had that attitude as well about the Persians, even though the Greeks themselves had all the homoeroticism going on. Exactly.
0: It's it's there's a there's a line line in that movie Three Hundred where they go, "We're not boy lovers like the Athenians." Well, actually, you were. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just bizarre. It's like yeah. weirdly imagining you know it's like well you know
1: we are still retelling these same stories just as you know homer did and all of the oral tradition bards i'm sure did throughout you know that period in between when the trojan war actually happened and when homer wrote it down we continue as storytellers we continue to tell stories that say more about the storytellers than about the subjects
2: of the story Uh,
0: absolutely and we're there is a
2: book called the silence of the girls and i'm trying to find the name do you know this i haven't i haven't laid hands on it yet i I remember seeing it but i i also had the silence of the girls and she tells the story from the perspective of briseis the captive there you go yeah so something to look for
0: all right well this has been always
2: do you Sorry, want to do yeah, a course. one more thing
1: or, or a, that, a final thought, Sean? That was
0: that was sort of the final thought, but I couldn't get the dinging to work. So oh now well, we, I've got, would got one. Would you like more, your final thoughts? Or I've I'm got one more as
1: well. That is a little bit that is relative to this, but uh, but a little bit of a new thought, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is uh, it. It came to me when when um, Max was talking about the whole uh, dichotomy between the women were supposedly impregnated by gods and yet the children were considered the children of the king. And that is, I wonder if that in and of itself is, um, is a, a sort of reframing echo of women, of the, the nobility, the women rulers, having a, a sexual autonomy, that, uh, that the kings adopted the children of
2: the queens whether uh-uh. or not they fathered them, hmm. yeah, that that's that's kind of the resonance of it, you know, and it's it's very murky. But I I do think that there's this kind of mythologizing of that um, an older pattern that's yeah. present there, yeah, yeah. And also, I, I'd just like to mention that uh, we were I, I had meant we were going to maybe talk about the oracles. I'm uh, doing a webcast this week on yes. the Melissa, the bee priestesses, the bee goddesses. A lot of it's Aegean, but I do really an international look. So we also look at Egypt and Zimbabwe and uh, Lithuania and various other places. So uh, uh, that's something that I think, Sean, you're going to put that link up. Uh, people can look for because that will be available as a recording for uh, uh, into, like, let's say, to August 1st. So if people okay, are good. interested in that oracular tradition, which is overlapping the same region that we're talking about, um, that might be something they would check out we'll Absolutely. put that link in and yeah. we should
0: uh i wanted to see how long that would be up we'll have this episode up soon so we'll, people will be able to watch uh, take a look yeah, at that definitely. so um, yeah so with that i just want to thank max please come back and talk some more with us okay sure all yeah. right we love talking to you uh dawn as always thank you so much for your insights thank you sean and thank you all for listening. I'm Sean Newcomb, and this is the 34th Circe Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. We've been talking with Max Dashu about Helen and the women of the Trojan War. Thank you for listening.
1: Take care, everyone, and blessed be.